And good morning again. It's good to be together. Good to see you. Um, we were joking. I put something in the E News uh, a couple of few weeks ago about uh, showing up on time. Some of you read that, and uh, the one of the lead ushers this morning said that ever since I uh, put that in the bulletin a couple of weeks ago, everyone's showing up a lot later. So we're going to try something this week. I'm going to write uh, in the e-news and say, don't get here before 9.45, whatever you do, and we'll see if kind of the reverse psychology goes the other way. Um, as Christy said during the announcements and Gladys uh, said during the uh, time with children, I've been asked to remind you, and especially those of you who are at home, but also those of you who are here, uh, to stick around right after worship, after the benediction, about 60 seconds after that, we're going to have a time of... Um, kind of sharing a presentation by uh, several folks from our visioning teams, including Terry Hudson. This is the first time you'll ever see Terry Hudson in slacks. So uh, if you want to see Terry Hudson in slacks for the first time ever uh, this morning, uh, stick around. Uh, If you're on live stream this morning, stick around. Uh, We ask you to. Uh, Whether you're a member or not, we'll be super glad if you'll be with us. It's an important time for us. It's the uh, in the congregation. Uh, you won't be able to participate in what happens on the patio, uh, but you will be able to join a Zoom meeting for that kind of workshop uh, tomorrow at 7 p.m. if you would like. But again, everyone's encouraged to stick around uh, after the worship service for a little bit. And now to our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, sometimes I come up on the steps with a decent amount of confidence. Uh, sometimes with a medium amount of confidence, sometimes with very little confidence at all. Uh, This is one of those very little confidence at all Sunday mornings. So uh, I particularly would ask God to help us and help me this morning. Let's pray. God, you created us, you know us. We recognize that you're sovereign and have dominion and that that's good. All things belong to you. All truth is yours. We need you uh, in so many ways. Our world spins along. Uh, We can't make it without your help, without your grace, and without your intervention. We thank you for your word in as much as it is revealed truth and guidance for our lives and for our faith. We thank you for the gift of your son who came as the full manifestation of your being and your presence. As we read about his ministry and his words in a moment, we ask that you would help us to be attentive, uh, lean our hearts toward yours, Renew our minds through your word. Give us eyes that really want to see and ears that really want to hear and hearts that are really good soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent with your word, may they be forgotten, passed over, not even heard. We pray these things with hope in the name of Jesus, amen. So one of the things about reading and studying straight through a book of the Bible rather than jumping around randomly from book to book and chapter to chapter and passage to passage is that that this 
practice allows one to better understand the context of a passage, seeing and understanding what comes before, what comes after, helping to see themes as they emerge, helping to make more sense and better sense and truer sense of what one is reading and how all of those things fit together. Another benefit of reading and studying scripture or a book of the Bible as it was written, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, straight through, is that doing so causes one to read all of the passages of Scripture that one might otherwise ordinarily not read, that are not included in fun sermon series, that don't make our top 10 lists, that are obscure and confusing and awkward and hard, the passages we'd be just fine not reading, and sometimes passages that people, including pastors, unconsciously and consciously just leave out, pass over, and ignore. But because we're reading through Mark's gospel, straight through, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and passage by passage, we can't do that. And so we find ourselves this morning in a challenging, a hard, a difficult, even confusing passage of scripture. Oh joy. Reading from chapter 10 of the gospel of Mark, beginning at verse one, listen closely. This is the word of God. Jesus then left that place, that place being Galilee, and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to Jesus, and as was his custom, he taught them. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark frequently refers to Jesus as teacher. He frequently tells us that he stops and teaches his disciples and large crowds of people. Mark rarely tells us exactly what Jesus is teaching about and on the content of his teaching. We're left to sometimes guess or infer. Verse two, some Pharisees came and tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, Jesus replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus quotes from chapter one of the book of Genesis there, the book of the beginning. Jesus quotes from chapter two then next. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, verbatim, out of chapter two, the other creation story. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then this famous line from Jesus that's often quoted at weddings, every wedding I've done, I've quoted it, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in their house again, which is for Mark, the place that Jesus goes to teach his disciples and to have those intimate times. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and this is another of those private debrief sessions that Jesus gifts his disciples with. Verse 11, Jesus answered, if anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, against her against. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery, which isn't such a big deal actually in our culture, but was a pretty big deal in first century culture. It could get you stoned. Today it gets you nothing. 
but then it would get you stoned and represented this great defilement, not just in a marriage, but toward God and in one's community. And just like everything else we've read up to this point in Mark's gospel, this is the word of the Lord. This, too, is the word of the Lord. And yet I ask myself, why, under the leading of God's spirit, did Mark, who did not have unlimited space for his gospel, include something like this in his gospel? Why, in the midst of his gospel, about healing people, about Jesus healing people, Jesus casting out demons, Jesus caring for people, Jesus lifting people up, Jesus walking on water, Jesus multiplying bread and fish, Jesus feeding the hungry, Jesus caring for the poor, Jesus being clear about who he was as Messiah, Yeshua, and Son of God, and Son of God. Why does Mark include this section on divorce? A little history may be helpful. Funny Gladys was talking about in Time with Children about um, the books of the Bible, the books of the Old Testament, 39, and the New Testament, 27, three times nine, 27, that's kind of fun. Uh, also interesting about the Old Testament is it's not in order, which is one of the things that makes it difficult to read. The fact that it's thousands of years old and from a variety of different cultures written by a variety of different people also makes it difficult to read. But the fact that it's not in chronological order also makes it difficult to read. So in the first half of the book of the Old Testament is a book called Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. They go together right after and overlapping with each other, Ezra and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is actually uh, records the last history in the Old Testament, the latest and last history, the very last, even though it comes earlier. And in Nehemiah, we read about the people coming back from Israel, the pe- uh, from, Bab- from exile in Babylon, and the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And Nehemiah is overseeing the re- were dismissing their wives for younger, more beautiful, more attractive women. And so there was this history and this culture that was already going on of divorce for unjust reasons. When we get fast forward to Jesus 400 years later, it was a part of their culture and every indication is that this continued to be practiced. From the last chapter of Malachi, the last words in the Old Testament, And this you do as well. You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. You ask, why why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. I hate divorce is the way some English translations put that. Maybe you've heard those words before. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and covering one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. Israel, including Israel's leaders, had this history of their men divorcing their wives, the wives of their youth, for presumably younger, younger and more beautiful pagan women. And this evil wearied God. This evil wearied God. And there was every indication that this continued during this 400 years of scriptural silence. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what the Pharisees were hearing Jesus teach about, 
but only that these Pharisees, who really sort of headquartered back in Jerusalem, have been following Jesus for a while, just to nag, just to get under his skin, just to look for opportunities to undermine his ministry. And so we don't know if Jesus was talking about divorce at this time, but they raised the subject. And we know that it was still a thing because we read in Matthew's gospel that Jesus' mother Mary could have been divorced by Joseph. Joseph thought about that in divorce as they understood it. He thought, we remember and read during Advent, that Jesus thought about divorcing Mary quietly. It was a practice, but, G, but, but Joseph didn't because he was a righteous person. But what the question of the Pharisees is, how can we trap Jesus? They didn't really care that much about divorce. And as much as they did, they would have liked, liked a broad understanding of divorce because they too were among those who practiced divorce regularly as they saw fit. And that's what most of us want. We want God's laws to fit with what we want, to accommodate our lives and even to accommodate our sin or our brokenness or our mistakes or our hurts. There were two schools of thought primarily in Jewish uh, life at this time about divorce. One was called the School of Shammai, and the School of Shammai was far more conservative and said uh, a husband could divorce a wife for marital unfaithfulness. The Greek word is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It didn't just mean pornography, though. It meant sexual immorality, and so it encompassed a lot of things, but primarily marital unfaithfulness or sexual unfaithfulness. The other school of thought, the other rabbinic school was uh, in the line of a rabbi named Hillel. And they were a little bit more progressive or liberal, you might say. And they said, really, that a husband could divorce his wife for any number of reasons. Because she didn't look good, because she wasn't pleasing, because she wasn't decent to him, because she looked at another man, because she broke something around the house, because the way she cooked wasn't pleasing to him. It was awfully broad and generous, if you were, if you will, about what could qualify as divorce, what was permissible. They were trying to chap Jesus, and if Jesus answered this way, then he would lose the following of all of these people, and if Jesus answered this way, he would lose the following of all of these people. He would upset these people, or he would upset these people. They were trying to trap him they were also in a region called Perea. And so map, if we had one up on the screen, Galilee, Samaria, Judah, where Israel is, where Jerusalem is. And on the right side of the Sea of Galilee is Perea. And that's where Jesus is traveling, down the right side from Galilee through Perea to Judea. Perea was governed by Herod Antipas, who you remember back in earlier chapters in Mark's gospel has divorced his wife to take on the wife of his brother, Herodias, and John the Baptist speaks out against that. And what happens to John the Baptist for speaking against Herod Antipas? Head comes off. And the Pharisees may be thinking, if we can trap Jesus into saying that there are no grounds for divorce or that they're very narrow, Antipas will come after him. Antipas governed this region called Perea. They're looking to trap Jesus. They don't really care what the answer is. 
But Jesus didn't care. He was like the grandmaster in chess, a grandmaster in martial arts. You've got challenges in the realms of scripture, theology, philosophy, ethics. Bring them on. Try to stump the chump. Good luck. Because Jesus had the answer. He was the smartest man who ever lived. He was the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. He could not be trapped, so bring on your challenges. Verse two, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, Jesus replied. The Pharisees asked what was lawful. In other words, what did the law say? The five books of Moses, the Old Testament, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. They asked what was lawful. Jesus replied, asking, what did Moses, not God, what did Moses command? The Pharisees replied correctly, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Moses did not command a person to write a certificate of divorce. Moses did not mandate that. Moses did not require divorce. And Jesus continued, it was because your hearts were hardened that Moses wrote you this law. And that Greek word can be translated a variety of ways. Hardened hearts is an interesting literal way to translate it. Like atherosclerosis in our words. But it means uh, much more than that. It's translated in various English translations as stubbornness. Your minds were closed. You were hard to teach. You were not teachable. The lexicon says obstinate. And that's not just people who are struggling in marriage. That's all of us. That's every one of us. That's not just those whose marriages have unraveled. Every marriage is hard. Is it true? To those of you who are married or have been married, or at one time were married, is any marriage always easy? No. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus said, but at the beginning of creation... In other words, before the law with a capital L and so superseding the law, God made them male and female. These two people are to be united in the covenant of marriage and they become one flesh to the point that they are no longer two but one. This is marriage. The Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce. He tells them about marriage. Do we see that? And then this, therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. God's plan was marriage, God's plan was union, God's plan was two becoming one in such a way that they were not to be separated and maybe they could not be separated like blue and yellow dye coming together and making green, like peanut butter and jelly coming, to make, coming together to make a beautiful sandwich. The two pieces of bread can be pulled apart but the peanut butter and jelly are one forever, thank God. The union of a man and woman produce a new flesh or if you will, a new person, a child, a human being that is unlike any other person in history, a new flesh that cannot be separated, right? So also God's intention in creation was that a male and a female might form one flesh and in that one flesh, a covenant that would last, a union in which there was trust, a relationship of blessing, giving, love, service, support, and submission. Too often people get married for what marriage or the other person, the future spouse can do for them. Not God's model of marriage. 
Whether one holds a complementarian view of marriage or an egalitarian view of marriage, the Apostle Paul's view of marriage involved mutual submission to each other in love and with respect. Is it not true? Some of you hold a complementarian view of marriage. Some of you an egalitarian view. It doesn't matter in one sense. Marriage was to provide for the husband and wife, and marriage was to create a healthy, safe, and loving environment for the birth and nurture of children. Marriage was to give structure to society. I've said zillions of times in weddings. But then quickly there comes this finger pointing in the garden in chapter three of Genesis, a rift between man and woman. The disobedience of Adam and Eve brought the effects of sin onto them and all of creation directed in Genesis three at both man and woman. And here, at woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Deep grief. To the point that by the time Moses was writing out the law for God's people in Deuteronomy, he wrote in chapter 24, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and then after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land The Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Again, verse one. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he may write her a certificate of divorce, which unfortunately reveals husbands ruling over their wives as we read in Genesis 3. Yes, Moses permitted divorce, but this was not God's intention in creation. Instead of what God designed in creation, women had become almost disposable, discardable. They had few rights. One has to look back and kind of go, this whole thing was in need of redemption anyway. This whole thing was in need of redemption anyway. Many of our lives have been touched by divorce. Some of you here are divorced, have been divorced, some multiple times. Divorce is never fun. It's never anything to joke about. It's always painful. It's never what was planned. I've done so many weddings, days on which there's joy and love and celebration and smiles and laughter right here. And no one, no one, no one comes to this spot thinking that one day in months, years, or decades later, they will be experiencing Divorce, difficulty, dissension, pain, disagreement, disappointment, unfulfilled expectations, infidelity in some cases, addictions in some cases, abuse of a variety of sorts, inappropriate behavior, financial mismanagement, affairs, loneliness, anger. Divorce is always hard, 
just like so much of life for the rest of us, whether we're married or whether we're not married, is hard and can be hard. Even when divorce may be relief, it is hard. It is often hard. God may hate divorce, but God doesn't hate people who are divorced, who have experienced divorce, who get divorced, or even people who choose divorce. There are so many reasons that people get divorced. And no one comes to marriage thinking that's going to be their destiny. But God doesn't hate divorce. God doesn't hate people who are divorced. God may hate divorce because of what it does, because of the trust that's broken, because of the unions that's broken, because people just statistically and demographically become much poorer when they get divorced most of the time because it leaves children as victims, because it often, probably more often, leaves women as victims, as we saw in Genesis, as we saw in Deuteronomy, as we saw in Nehemiah, as we saw in Ezra, as we saw in Malachi. God is concerned about justice and the well-being for people, and in this case, for married people, and especially for women, and especially for children. One of the problems with divorce, sometimes, not always, none of these things are absolute and apply to everyone, is that someone will get divorced because there was a problem, the problem was with the other person. And then they get remarried, and as it turns out, the problem's still with the other person. And they get divorced, and the problem's still with the next person they marry, and so maybe the problem wasn't always the other person. It takes two to tango. Marriage can be really hard. It can be quite a gift and quite a blessing, but it can also be really, really, really hard. Jesus isn't going to haggle for long about divorce, but instead shifts the conversation back to marriage. He wants people to live, those who are called, in marriages that honor God, in marriages that reflect God's covenant. When they go into the little house uh, for some private teaching with Jesus' disciples, the subject of remarriage comes up. Jesus is really honest. He recognizes, and I think this I want to say fairly clearly, that the purpose of marriage is not always achieved and Jesus recognizes that without condoning it. We know that God's will is a permanent marriage between one man and one woman, but when that simply doesn't work out, a divorce, and a divorce does occur, is remarriage all right? The word of the Lord in response to this question is clear and uncompromising. If remarriage follows divorce, it is an act of adultery, Jesus said, against the abandoned partner. The statement is not prescriptive. 
That is, Jesus not, does not reply, if you divorce, do not remarry. Rather, it is a description, descriptive. That is, it assumes remarriage after divorce does occur and describes it as a violation of the relationship created by the first marriage. It is not a new law of either permission or prohibition. It is rather a principle which recognizes the primordial will of God for human marriage, as well as what happens to the human psyche when that gracious purpose is not achieved. Jesus' word recognizes the legal dimensions of marriage by using the legal term adultery. However, by adding against her and by speaking in turn of each partner who initiates a divorce and another marriage, the text deals with the issue in personal rather than legal terms. A divorce may revoke a legal contract, but one cannot unlive the vital ties created by life together in marriage, however painful they may be. Jesus does not legislate by saying no remarriage, but rather he recognizes that divorce and remarriage, what they do to the residual relationship with a former partner. And Jesus insists that his disciples understand that the problem cannot be avoided by legal means. And this set the early church counter to easy and selfish views of marriage and the surrounding culture. And I think that's what Jesus is after without being overly dogmatic, and yet he is here more than almost any other place in scripture and on any other topic. We can't avoid that, but we must understand it. The church, for its part, probably hasn't done a great job of living up to this. Not individuals, but the church. And I don't know what that would look like. The Catholic church has tried with this awkward thing called annulment. When we have weddings, I always ask the congregation to stand and take a vow with the bride and groom. Will you support? Do you promise to love? Do you pray for? Will you? This couple, because marriage isn't always easy, and everyone nods and smiles and says, of course. But do we live out that covenant with one another when times get hard? Are we willing to do so graciously and with love and tenderness? Or do we label and abandon and push away and judge and criticize. I hope not. The church doesn't unrecognize marriage. Have you ever thought about that? We have a ceremony called a wedding, but we don't have a ceremony called an unwedding. That happens in the context of the state, the civil government, the marriage license. But that's not what is being talked about here. What's being talked about here is the spiritual union of two people with and before God. Church is to come around people in love and support those who are married in the struggles of marriage because they are many, just as the church should support those called to singleness. Many of us wouldn't be here 
if it had not been for divorced people remarrying. I'm one of those. That's our story. And God is able to redeem and bring about good out of hard situations. And so we must recognize that even as we recognize God's high calling in marriage and his determination to not let easy divorce or frivolous divorce or careless divorce or serial divorce be a part of his culture. The structuring power of God's grace recognizes that that will happen. It will happen very much and very often. It does in our world today, and the divorce rate's incredibly high and about as high in the church as it is outside of the church. But those who find themselves with no other choice but divorce or in the face of divorce or having been divorced haven't stepped out of the umbrella of God's grace. God's mercy is for people who struggle, have struggled, are in that place just as much as for the rest of us who desperately need God's grace. May he continue to minister to all of us, whether we're single or married or divorced or remarried or divorced again or whoever. May we come after each other with love and not judgment, with tenderness and compassion, with understanding and mercy as God has been merciful to us. Let's pray. So hard, God, when Jesus said, that if we want to follow you, we must take up our cross and deny ourselves so hard. Lord, when Jesus talked about selling everything we have and giving it to the poor as part of following you, so hard in the brokenness of our world, all of us, all of creation and all humanity living in and under and with the curse of our own sin and brokenness and failure and rebellion. To live up to that which you designed. Thank you for your grace and your mercy when we're simply unable to. Thank you that you don't abandon us. Thank you that while you loathe our sin, all of our sin, that you do not love your be- loathe your beloved children. And so we worship you as the king of glory, as the wellspring of love, as the furnace of grace, as the source of all mercy. Have mercy upon us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Love that's never failing. Them 